Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about empowering each of us with the perspective and tools to grow and change. Thanks for joining us today. You know, for several months now, I've had today's topic on my mind. It's rooted in a firm belief that you and I are filled with greatness. And I'll share a few thoughts that I hope today will bless your life and help you see the world and your place in it in a new and better way. So, as you listen today, I hope you get a new view of your potential to lead and live better. And when you're done listening today, copy the link to this podcast and send it to someone who needs a little encouragement in their life. A few words and a new perspective can make a big difference for them as well. Let's get started. Today, I'd like to talk about your greatness and the dichotomy in life that leads to greatness. Now, if you were reading social media news during COVID, you likely heard that there was a significant migration of people moving out of expensive places to live, like California, to other areas of the country. However, the Brookings Institute reports that COVID-related migration was not more but less than what has happened in the past. Between 2020 and 21. 8.4% of Americans changed residences. That is one of the lowest migration years in recent history. The largest migration in United States history took place with the buildup for World War II. It included what was called the Great Black Migration, in which 2.4 million black workers relocated from southern states to northern urban centers. And these centers, or cities, include New York, Chicago, St. Louis, Pittsburgh, and Louisville, Kentucky. And as a result, by 1950, the population of Louisville had already reached nearly one-half a million people, making it one of the larger cities in the Midwest. It was in the midst of this great migration that Cassius Marcellus Clay was born in Louisville. When Clay was 12 years old, he was angry and fuming over a thief stealing his bicycle. He told a police officer he was going to find the thief and whoop him. And the officer said, well, you better learn how to fight first. So later, when he saw a local television program about boxing, he started to learn how to box. And as a young man, he won six Kentucky Golden Glove titles. And in 1960, at the age of 18, Clay made his professional debut as a boxer. And by the end of 1963... He had a boxing record of 19-0 with 15 of those wins by knockout. One of those fights was with his former trainer, Archie Moore, whom he defeated. But those fights were not all easy. He was knocked down several times. When he fought in Madison Square Gardens, Clay was welcomed with booze and debris being thrown on him after the fight. Why was Clay so unpopular? Well, he vocally belittled his opponents and vaunted his own greatness. He called Doug Jones an ugly little man. Clay had a big mouth and was a big bragger. And three years into his boxing career, he got a chance to fight the heavyweight champion, Sonny Liston. And Clay would say before the fight, Liston is a big, ugly bear. He even smells like a bear. And after I beat him, I'm going to donate him to the zoo. Well, Clay outlasted Liston in the fight, and Liston would quit in the seventh round. And Clay immediately ran to the ropes stood up tall and yelled to the crowd, I am the greatest. I shook up the world, and I'm the prettiest thing that ever lived. 
Two days later, Clay would announce that he had accepted the teachings of Islam, and he changed his name to Muhammad Ali, a name given to him by his spiritual mentor, Elijah Muhammad. Well, Ali would go on to defeat Floyd Patterson, defy the Vietnam draft, fight Joe Lewis multiple times, defeat Ken Norton, battle George Foreman, and his popularity as a champion grew. And when all was said and done, his final record as a professional was 56 wins and only five losses. He won 37 of his bouts by knockout. He was fast-handed and dominating as a boxer, with all the intangibles of grit and toughness necessary to be the greatest of all time. Ali beat more opponents than Mike Tyson, Joe Frazier, Evander Holyfield, and a host of other great boxers. He lost and regained the heavyweight title three times. In 1979, Ali started to struggle with vocal stutters and trembling hands, and the Boxing Commission ordered that he undergo a physical, and despite the protests from many around him, Ali was declared fit to fight. So, in 1980, he stepped into the ring to fight Larry Holmes in Las Vegas. In the 10th round, Ali's trainer stopped the fight. And for most watching, it was a pitiful scene. Ali was brutalized and beaten by Holmes. Not because Holmes was a great fighter, but because Ali had lost so much of his coordination and ability to move. Just a few years later, in 1984, after he was done fighting, Ali was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease at the age of 42. And Ali would go on to battle Parkinson's for 32 years. A longer fight than his boxing career, for sure. The world watched as his ability to speak and move declined. And the more he endured, the greater he became in the eyes of the public. He was more heroic in his sickness than he was in perfect health as a young boxer. Well, by 1996, his life was held hostage by Parkinson's as it had progressed to rob him of much of his speech and movement. In that year, the Summer Olympic Games were held in Atlanta, Georgia. And to start the Olympics and the journey of the Olympic torch to Atlanta, on April 27th in Los Angeles, Olympian Rafer Johnson carried the torch for the first mile. Well, as the Olympic torch entered the Centennial Olympic Stadium, it was carried by four-time gold medal-winning discus thrower Al Orter. Orter was perhaps the greatest discus thrower in history and the first to throw a discus 200 feet. He then passed the torch to Evander Holyfield, the only Olympic boxer to go on to win the undisputed championship in two weight classes. Holyfield then passed the flame to American swimmer Janet Evans. The penultimate torchbearer, Evans earned four gold medals in the prior Olympics, and she carried the torch around a lap of the track and up a long ramp leading towards the northern end of the stadium. There, as the platform atop the ramp was illuminated, the identity of the final torchbearer was revealed. There atop the ramp was the greatest of them all, Muhammad Ali. Ali was noticeably shaking and moved awkwardly, and the world knew of his battle with Parkinson's. And Ali, who had won a gold medal in the 1960 Olympic Games in Rome, lit a mechanical torch, which then traveled along a wire, lighting the cauldron at the top of a 116-foot tower. Ali's appearance has been referred to as being one of the most inspiring, poignant, and emotional moments in Olympic history. Why is that? Why did Ali's battle with Parkinson's endear the world so powerfully 
when his boxing career was unable to garner such broad support? Well, the answer is quite profound and an inspiring lesson to you and me. It was not uncommon during Ali's fighting years to hear him say on multiple occasions, I am the greatest. Well, after Muhammad Ali had endured decades of Parkinson's, after it had robbed him of his graceful movement and speech, he told the Washington Post, I'm blessed and thankful to God that I understand he's testing me. God gave me this physical impairment to remind me that I am not the greatest. He is. Now, isn't that how life is? We travel a road in life only to learn the lesson that we should have learned all along. Life is filled with irony and paradox and dichotomy. It is profound that most who become great realize in the end that they are in fact small and even powerless. There is a dichotomy to greatness. Webster defines dichotomy as a division into two seemingly contradictory qualities. In other words, dichotomy describes something with two contradictory parts. So consider leadership as an example. There's a dichotomy of leadership. A good leader must be humble, yet be extremely confident. A leader must see the landscape broadly, but also the small details. You could think of dichotomy by using the old analogy that there are two sides of the same coin. And the problem is that some of us struggle with those two sides of the same coin. We're not skilled at balancing both. For example, leaders who are extremely confident can get caught in the trap of being narcissistic or seeking their own or imposing their mood on others and rarely putting others ahead of themselves. And on the other side of the coin is that humble leaders can sometimes lose the drive or fail to model the confidence necessary to gain the trust to really lead. Life is also full of dichotomy. For example, some people are hard-charging and fast-paced and living life chasing big returns. And if they spend too much of their life in this mode, when they stop working, they have feelings of inadequacy or get depressed because their busyness chip is not working or feel uncomfortable unless something pressing is in front of them. And for many of those people, why do they work those long hours? Because they want the simple life. In fact, they're working to have the means and times to retire with the simple life. But when retirement age comes along, living simply is so foreign to them at that point that they struggle to find peace. And on the opposite side, for those who are used to living the simple life, if they're forced to enter into a period of extreme work, they feel stressed and anxious and unable to cope with what's pressed upon them. Well, I believe that God gives us these opposites, these dichotomies, to help us learn and grow. It's in the contrast of things that we find the profound. It's in the paradoxical that allows us to open our eyes to a new view. And without the opposites, the dichotomy, we couldn't see in new ways who we are and what we can become. We become great. We become leaders. We become gifted when we can become skilled at seeing the opposite view. When we can experience one side of life's dichotomies and not get stuck in that way of living, step away from it, and adopt a new view, we find the secret to greatness. So, how do we not get stuck in a rut, so to speak, and become skilled at seeing both sides of life and what it has to teach us? 
Well, first, we need to understand the role that emotions play in governing our life. Emotion can compel you to take action or make decisions. For example, let's say as a student, you have a big exam coming up. And as a result, you feel a great deal of anxiety about the exam and how it will impact your final grade. And yes, it could motivate you to study harder, or it could cause you to freeze and panic, unable to fully focus on the job at hand. But either way, emotion is a driver. So learning how to understand and direct our emotions is critical. And in my experience, even the most mature people still struggle with emotional direction. The more emotional direction or intelligence you have, the more power you have. For example, a leader who listens gains power. A follower who can guide their emotions and be influenceable can learn and grow. An extrovert who knows when to pull back and be quiet gains power. And on the list goes. And the point is this. Emotional intelligence allows you to see both sides of the coin. And with that, you can make emotions work for you instead of against you. Next, there is a power, an element of greatness, that exists with people who are always open to and seeking learning. As the saying goes, if you're not willing to learn, no one can help you. If you're determined to learn, no one can stop you. You know, when I was a boy, my parents couldn't afford or pretended they couldn't afford television. And while we did have a television, it was a small black and white TV, and watching it really wasn't worth the effort on most days. But one thing my parents did have was a small library. So I read and read a lot. A few books sitting on the shelf were put there by my dad. And one day I picked up one of those books entitled The Greatest Miracle in the World by Og Mandino. Now, Og Mandino was born in Natick, Massachusetts in 1923. And his mother often said to him, you will be a writer, and not just any writer, a great writer. So while in high school, he planned to study journalism at the University of Missouri. But before he could, two months after his high school graduation, his mom was making lunch for him, and she collapsed in front of him and died of a heart attack. And that was the end of his dream to become a writer and go to college. Instead, he joined the Army, became a bombardier, and flew over 30 missions in a B-24 over Germany in World War II. And when he returned from the war, there wasn't much demand for bombardiers, so off to New York he went to become a writer. He failed. He visited 50 magazine offices, left copies of his short stories, and all turned him down. By then, his military savings were gone. So he went home and started selling insurance, got married, and started what he termed the most terrible 10 years of his life. He was on a treadmill, only a few paces ahead of bill collectors, and one night he stopped by a bar for a drink, and one drink led to another, and one stop turned into daily stops, and soon he was an alcoholic, and as a result, lost his wife and his daughter, and he soon lost his home, and he drank his way across the country doing any kind of work he could. He drove an oil truck, worked construction, was a pin boy in a bowling alley, and on it went. Here he was, a 35-year-old man whose life had failed. One night in Cleveland, while he was walking the streets, he stopped at a pawn shop and looked through the window at a handgun. And while standing there, he became convinced that the entire solution to his problems 
was buying that handgun and ending his life. For whatever reason, he turned away from the pawn shop window and staggered to the public library. He hadn't been in the library much. Books had always been his friends, and his mother loved books. So he sat in the library and started to search for some answers. He thought, I know there's a better way to live, but where are the directions to that life? That started a search that lasted several months, reading Aristotle, Carlyle, Franklin, Carnegie, and more. Soon his drinking tapered down, and his self-esteem gradually began to increase. Then one day in a library in New Hampshire, he read a book that changed his life forever. It was called Success Through a Positive Mental Attitude by W. Clement Stone and Napoleon Hill. In this book, the authors talk of an invisible talisman. A talisman is an inscribed coin or stone thought to have magical powers. And in their story, on one side of the talisman is written PMA, and on the other is NMA, a dichotomy of sorts, which represents positive and negative mental attitude. The talisman, they said, is your mind, and you can use it to attract the good and beautiful or let it rob you of all that makes life worth living. The message resonated deeply with Og. He could see how his mind and choices could direct him one direction in life or the other. And as he was reading the book, at the end of the chapters was a section called Thoughts to Steer By. And the first thought listed said this, meet the most important living person. That person is you. And your success, health, happiness, wealth depends on how you use your invisible talisman. How will you use it? The choice is yours. Well, he devoured the book and read and reread it many times, and soon other books led him to a job selling insurance, and he also met a special lady. And they were married, and his insurance company hired him to train other people. And his training led to writing, and his writing to best-selling books. And like his mother said, he would become a great writer. Now, his book, The Greatest Miracle in the World, was a turning point for me. I read it and reread it as a young man. The story is really about Og himself, who meets a vagrant on the street, and the two have discussions about life. And the vagrant promises to send to Og a memorandum from God. And one day the vagrant disappears, and Og goes to his apartment, only to find a family living there who claims they've always lived there, and they don't know who the man is that Og is talking about. Well, when Og arrives home, they're waiting for him as a package, and inside is the memorandum from God. And here's what some of it says, directly from God. I weep for your childhood dreams that have vanished with the years, your self-esteem that has been corrupted by failure, your talent wasted through misuse. Do you remember who put those seeds of hope within you? Weep no more. I'm with you. And this moment is the dividing line of your life. All that has gone before you is gone. This day you return from the dead and begin a new life. This is the first day of that new life. Let me share with you the secret that you've forgotten. You are my greatest miracle. You are the greatest miracle in the world. And let's take an inventory. Are you blind? No. You can see a snowflake, a lake, a child, a star. Count one blessing. Are you deaf? Can you hear a baby cry or laugh? Blessing two. 
Are you mute? Can you move? Can you feel for others? Can you think and reason? And on the list of gifts went in the memorandum. Then the memo from God says, take counsel. No longer hide your rarity in the dark. Bring it forth. Show the world. Strive not to walk as your brother walks, nor talk as your leader talks, nor labor as do the mediocre. Be yourself. Choose to love, to laugh, to create, to persevere, praise, heal, give, act, grow, pray, and live. Enjoy this day, today, and tomorrow, because you have performed the greatest miracle in the world. You have returned from living death. You have been born again, and now you can choose despair or happiness. The choice is yours. Well, when I read this book and the memorandum from God, I felt as if God were talking directly to me, that I too had a choice, and that I was, or at least could be, the greatest miracle in the world. And the truth is that we all have an invisible talisman. We can choose to embrace the greatness within us. And perhaps the greatest dichotomy that exists in life is the choice to see ourselves as a miracle or not. See ourselves as filled with the potential to be and do and become what God has intended. Now, let's move on to a few other lessons to learn from life's dichotomies. People of influence, people who are skilled leaders, are comfortable leading by adapting in those dichotomies. Perhaps you're like me, currently leading a team and maybe struggling with how to gain more influence or trying to be an effective parent to teenagers. And maybe you're seeking the skill to help you gain more influence with them. And if that's you, then remember this skill to be positively adaptable. An adaptive leader is defined as someone who's able to change their behavior in response to changes in the situation. They are flexible, showing the ability to adapt their leadership style, even their perspective, to best meet the needs of the team. Now, I know leaders who have lived out of the same mindset for years, unable or unwilling to listen to what customers or others are telling them. For example, one leader I know learned great marketing principles when print advertising was the big thing. But now social media and the ways of reaching consumers have changed in the marketplace. But I have yet to see him survey his customer base or try new ways of communicating or even changing his language to reach a different demographic. And as a result, he's not as effective in his efforts. So, how do you improve your adaptability? Get curious. Ask questions. Become a great learner. And as you do, you'll discover different ways of thinking and leading. Next, to find greatness in the midst of dichotomy requires an unwavering patience that most people don't or can't sustain. Greatness requires the long view. You know, C.S. Lewis once said, I'm sure God keeps no one waiting unless he sees that it is good for him to wait. The long view allows the person to learn and grow in the opposites in life. You see, time is a tool, one dimension that we can use to become great. Let me give you an example. My friend Jeff shared his experience this way. In 2003, Jeff and his wife, Christine, went to the hospital for a test. Christine was pregnant, and she had not felt the baby move for a day or two. And when they hooked up Christine to the monitors, 
they found a heartbeat with the baby, and everyone breathed a sigh of relief. But with the monitor running, the nurse stepped out of the room. Then something changed. The regular heartbeat on the monitor stopped. So they called for the nurse, and she came in and thought the monitor had slipped, so she searched for a heartbeat. Then she called another nurse to search for the heartbeat, and they kept searching and still no heartbeat. Then all of a sudden, there was chaos in the room. Doctors were called, explanations were made, and they started an emergency C-section. Well, the baby was born, but wasn't breathing. There was a faint heartbeat and loss of blood. Christine, the mother, was fine, but the baby Caroline was air-flighted to a children's hospital for care. And when Jeff arrived at the children's hospital, baby Caroline was beneath a plastic shield, and all he could do was pray for her. He prayed that she would live and have a strong heart and lungs. Well, after weeks and lots of tests and opinions from experts, he learned that his daughter would have strong lungs and heart, but because of the loss of oxygen to her system during delivery, she suffered severe brain damage. Well, almost 20 years later, little Caroline is stuck at a development level of a three-month-old child. She can't talk. They're unsure of what she understands. Her ears and eyes seem to function, but it's unclear how much she can process with the things going on around her. She has frequent seizures or tremors. She eats through a stomach tube and has a special diet. Sometimes she'll start to cry, and they don't know what to do to help her. And often they just have to do their best and pray. She chimes in with her ah sounds when they sing to her, and she smiles when they sing her favorite songs. There's lots of love in their family and a lot of long days and nights. And in the midst of this trial, they've grown. They're full of love and most of all, full of hope. Hope that someday in this life, but most likely the next, Caroline will have the chance to know and feel and experience what it's like to talk and sing and connect with other people. Now, without this 20-year lesson in their lives, Jeff and his family would not have gained the perspective and skills and patience that they've developed. Their greatness inspires me. Jeff said, God doesn't expect me to pray for Caroline with faith that she'll be healed. He invites me to pray for her with faith in him, in his wisdom, to do what is best, though it may cause her and me and him temporary anguish of soul. God takes the long view. This is greatness at its best that in the pain and enduring, Jeff has learned the value of the long view. In a world where we want greatness in a moment or as the result of a short burst of energy, Jeff teaches us that we are at our best. We are the greatest in the long view. You know, in the Bible, there's a little shared story of a father who brings his son, who was crippled and mute, to Jesus to be healed. The boy at times would get angry and tear and foam at the mouth and gnash his teeth. And when the father asks Jesus to heal his son, Jesus replies that with God, all things are possible for those that believe. And the father of the child cries out and says with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Jeff says he can relate to this man, that in his days and nights of enduring and praying and hoping, that he has been in need of such sustaining belief as he patiently cares and hopes and prays for Caroline. You know, recently their family was having a lighthearted discussion 
about a momentous topic, Jeff's hair, or rather the lack of it, because Jeff's mostly bald. Jeff said to his wife and daughter that in heaven, they won't even recognize me with my curly locks of hair. And without a pause, his daughter Lizzie said, I think we'll be too distracted by Caroline talking to notice. Oh, the long view brings hope and greatness into our life. And with it, we can fully experience the dichotomies in our life of pain and peace and faith and doubt and the give and take of life. So as we end today, remember, greatness is waiting for you as you navigate the dichotomies of life. And if you will open your eyes to see things from both sides, lead with adaptability, learn all you can, and recognize that you are the greatest, the greatest miracle in the world, just watch. You will find greatness in your life and the lives of those around you. Most of all, thanks for being here today. Be sure to join us next week for another podcast as we learn to open our eyes to who and what we can become.